Today's scripture comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads together and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, you know the things that are weighing us down, that is making us feel anxious, that is making us feel unsafe. And Father, we pray that you will help us in spite of these things. And Lord, we also pray for those of us who may be not feeling those things at all, but should be feeling conviction from you. Father, we ask that regardless of where we stand before you, that you will meet us and lead us to the place where we must go, which is to be in your loving presence where we submit our lives to you and make you our true and rightful king. Father, we pray for those among us here who are visiting either this church or even this faith. Lord, we pray that you will speak to them even as they sit through a family meeting. Lord, we pray that it will be one that would compel them to where they would want to be a part of this family known as God's church. Father, we pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So we're continuing our sermon series through our vision statement, which we do at the beginning of every new year. And the point of this series is to make sure that as a congregation, we have a clear and consistent understanding of what we're about as a church. So far in this series, we talked about how God has called us as a church to be a blessing to the world, not a curse to the world. And then last week, we talked about as a church, we're called to display our love for God by taking up our cross and following him daily. Well, this leads us now to the third topic we're going to be looking at that comes from the second subtext of our vision statement. And if this is your first Sunday with us, here is our statement in context of that second subtext, which goes like this. NCF exists to grow up in the gospel in order to go out with the gospel through members that flourish Queens, New York City, the world, and the next generation by displaying their primary allegiance to Jesus, which was last week. And then today, secondly, cultivating genuine relationships within their social networks or oikos to share Jesus, to share Jesus. Those last two words, share Jesus, is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what it means to be people who share our faith with the people around us. Now, Christian, I know that this is a very uncomfortable topic for you for a variety of reasons. For some of you, this is an uncomfortable topic of sharing Jesus because you've been made uncomfortable by the reaction of those that you were sharing Jesus with. Maybe the conversation went in a direction that you were not anticipating. They asked a question that you had no idea how to answer. They brought up an issue that you were completely ignorant of. Or maybe in a moment of 
intensity, maybe in a moment of anger, you spoke in such a way that cut off the relationship and maybe cut off all conversations from ever beginning again. Then there are others of you who are uncomfortable about this topic because you're not very sure if this is the good thing to do. Oh, yeah, you hear from churches all the time that we should be sharing Jesus, but come on, we live in New York City where the, one of the biggest cultural values that we have is what? Tolerance. Tolerance. And we don't want to be labeled as, quote-unquote, one of those kinds of Christians who shove our faith down people's throat, giving off this stereotype that we're just narrow-minded, primitive-minded people. And so what do we do? We don't tell anything. We don't get asked. We don't tell. Now, wherever you stand and whatever reason you may have of why you don't share Jesus, the consensus seems to be clear. We, as Christians today, hardly ever tell people about Jesus. The people in our lives who don't know Jesus know nothing about the Jesus that we would share with them because we don't share him. Now, sadly, this trend is something that's not just confined in our own city. Last year, the Christian think tank Lifeway did a massive survey where they came to discover that 55% of professing Christians, 55% of evangelicals tell us that they have not shared Jesus with anyone at all. 55%. And then only 27% of us have shared Jesus once, maybe twice in the past six months. You know, when I read these statistics, I couldn't help but to wonder What do you think our non-Christian peers feel about the fact that there's this growing trend that people like us aren't sharing Jesus? What do you think that they must feel? Now, I know that you think you know how they would feel, and that is probably relief, right? I'm sure that you believe that your non-Christian friends, neighbor, coworkers are probably very thankful that you don't bring up Jesus whatsoever in your relationship with them. You know what? I used to think that way, too. But then I came across these following words that start off this way. Quote, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, um, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. End quote. These words come out of the mouth of Penn Jillette of the famed magician duo Penn and Taylor, who also happens to be a very staunch atheist. That's right. An atheist said these words, which tells us what? It tells us that perhaps maybe the assumptions that we have amongst our non-Christian peers are completely off. Maybe, just maybe, they would feel the way that Pendulette feels by you refusing to share Jesus. That instead of respecting them, maybe you're actually hating on them. If this is true, do you know what that means? It means we're being played the fool. Because a fool in the Bible can fit many categories, two particular that are relevant to us. You can be a fool by making false assumptions, which in this case with Pendulette and maybe your non-Christian friends, we see. But then there's also the category of fool that comes from being disobedient. Need I remind you, Christian, that sharing Jesus is one of the prime directives that we are to follow as we follow Christ? 
And so in my hopes that you not play the fool, either by making false assumptions or by downright disobedience, today's sermon about what it means to share Jesus. And so as I bring this topic to you, there are three things that you need to be aware of, three things that you need to make sure that you truly share Jesus. Number one, you need to know the prerequisite, the prerequisite need to share Jesus. Number two, you need to know the pain that is required to share Jesus, the pain. And then finally, the power needed to share Jesus. So all P letters, the prerequisite, the pain, and the power that is needed to share Christ. You ready? Let's begin with the first, the prerequisite needed to share Jesus. Starting in verse 25, it reads as follows. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, as you may or may not have gathered, Paul is in prison. Okay? And the reason why he's in prison is because of some weird, freakish scenario that happened. Just moments before their imprisonment, uh, Paul exercised a demon out of a little girl who was being used by her masters to make money through fortune telling. And Paul, in frustration of what was happening, exercised this demon out of this slave girl. And when her masters realized that Paul just got rid of their meal ticket by getting rid of the demon that allowed her to tell fortunes, What do they do? They retaliate against Paul by trumping up false charges that lead to their false arrest here in prison. Okay? Now, as unusual as the scenario that left them in prison is, what's even more unusual is Paul and Silas, the companion of Paul, their reaction. Because what do they do while they're in jail? They start praying. Now, you're thinking to yourself, uh, that doesn't sound very unusual. You know, people who go to prison, I'm sure, are praying a lot. Well, maybe so. But what else are they doing besides praying? They're singing to God, right? Specifically, they're singing praises to God, which tells us the kinds of prayers that Paul and Silas are lifting up. And they're not desperate, demanding prayers like, oh, please get me out of this situation. No. This combination of praise and prayer tells us that these are prayers of adoration, prayers of praise, prayers of thanksgiving. So what that tells us is that Paul and Silas respond to dreadful situations with devoted spirituality. Let me say that again. Paul and Silas show us that they face dreadful situations with devoted spirituality. And what I mean by devoted spirituality is they display a love for God that is genuine, not convenient. They show a love for God that is genuine, not convenient. I'm sure you may have heard this phrase thrown around. Hopefully it was never thrown at you, but I'm talking about the fair weather friend. You guys know what a fair weather friend is? It's the kind of friend who only wants to be your friend when it's easy for them or when it's convenient, right? That's a fair-weather friend. A fair-weather friend is someone who only wants to be your friend when it's convenient for them to be your friend. But the moment they have issues, the moment difficulties come into their lives, the moment troubles invade them to where they need to drop something or someone, you don't hear from them. You know why? Because they dropped you. (laughs) That's a fair-weather friend. It's someone who drops you when they're in trouble rather than someone who drops everything when you're in trouble, which is what a true friend is. That is a fair weather friend. And here's what's so sad. Many people who self-identify as friends of Jesus are more accurately labeled as fair weather friends of Jesus because the only time they seem to make any effort in prioritizing faith, let alone think about their faith, is when it's convenient for them. Oh, The kids don't have a soccer game today. Looks like we can go to church. Ooh, 
the mission team is going to Thailand. I've always wanted to go to Thailand on vacation. Hey, let's join the team this summer. Oh, my goodness, I need to drop off this pot to so-and-so, and they live all the way out in Sunnyside, so let's go enter lock at, at Sunday service, and let's go to service today. Now, please, <laughs> don't take offense to any of these statements because I know that not any one of them individually is indicative of you having a fair-weather friendship with Christ. But if none other but these statements go through your mind, come out of your mouth, and motivate your actions, well, maybe you do have a fair-weather friendship with Jesus. That is, you only seek to have God in your life when it's convenient for you. And as long as you have this kind of relationship with Jesus, guess what, my friends? You will never share Christ with anybody. Because the prerequisite needed to share Jesus with others is a genuine friendship with Jesus, not a convenient friendship with Jesus. Why? Because the underlying assumption, whenever you share anything with anyone that you're trying to convince is valuable to them, is that it's valuable to you. I mean, case in point, consider these late night infomercials that you see when you can't sleep, right? Selling the latest gadgets and trinkets going around. If you listen to their message carefully, sometimes they'll even use the word share to convey buyers to buy their thing. We at so-and-so company want to share this product with you because we believe it will add value to your life as it adds value to our lives or your money back. And so you hear that message and what do you think? Oh, yeah, you're darn right. I'm going to buy Total Gym. I want to look like Chuck Norris at 80. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to buy those Ginsu knives because how else am I going to cut a piece of bread as thin to where I can see the other side? Oh, that spray of hair. Man, I promise. I didn't seriously consider it. I seriously did not. You know, I know it's, you know, I'm being silly, but I'm making a serious point. We only share things with others that we tell is valuable to them because we firmly believe it is valuable to us. But Christian, let me ask, how in the world can you convince another person that Jesus is a valuable friend to them when you're simply a fair-weather friend to him? The answer is, you can't and you won't. The only way you will be willing to share Jesus is if your relationship with him is genuine, not convenient. And the way you know that this is your relationship with Christ, that you truly are genuine with him and you're not just a fair weather friend, is if you're willing to make him a priority when things are hard, like being falsely imprisoned. Consider these words from theologian Harry Ironside, where he writes, quote, the world is watching Christians. And when they see Christians shaken by circumstances as they themselves, they conclude that after all there is very little to Christianity. But when they find Christians rising above circumstances and glorying in the Lord, even in deepest trial, then even the unsaved realize that Christians have something in knowing Christ to which they are strangers, end quote. What's he saying, Christian? He's saying the way you know you're not a fair-weather friend is if you're willing to make Jesus a priority even when it's inconvenient to making him a priority. And that's how you know you have the wherewithal in you of actually sharing Jesus with the people in your life. So that's the first thing we need. We need to meet the prerequisite required in order for us to share Jesus, which is we need to have a love for him that's genuine, not a love that's just convenient, okay? 
This leads us to the second thing we need. And that's the second point, the pain needed to share Jesus. Read again 25, but this time let's include verse 26 and 27. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now... Just when you thought that this weird situation Paul is in could not get even weirder, it does with this whole earthquake scenario. And the temptation is for the reader, you guys can come to, is that there's no practical relevance, there's no personal application that you can get out of this experience that Paul had in the prison cell. But oh, you would be so wrong. Because if you look at this text carefully, you can extrapolate one crucial key principle that you must always remember and always apply when you share Jesus with others. And you know what that principle is? It's wait for the pain. Wait for the pain. I find it so interesting that Paul and Silas waited so long to tell the jailer about Jesus until after the jailer was in a situation where he was in a crisis, where he was filled with so much dread to the point where he was willing to kill himself. And the reason why I say it's so interesting, because look at the reaction of what the jailer did once they did share Jesus with them. What did they do? The jailer brought them into his house, fed him a meal, healed their wounds and you're thinking to yourself guys why didn't you share jesus earlier why didn't you just go ahead and tell them about christ especially knowing what he would have done for you in response to it you know why paul and silas knew something that only veteran evangelists figure out as years and years of faithful evangelism is done and you know what that is consider these words from church consultant charles arn he says this quote how do we identify the receptive people in our community. One proven way is through life events, or more specifically, transitional life events. Here is the principle. The more disruptive a life event is to a person's psychological equilibrium, the more it will cause him or her to be spiritually respected. Receptive, excuse me. Robert Pearson rightly observes, people most often make decisions for Christ when they're going through transitions. Most do not make decisions about new commitments and directions in their life when everything is going well. We make those decisions when we are in the midst of stress and difficulty. When the church is there to help and share the gospel at the point of their greatest need, people respond. Because those are the times people are the most open, end quote. In other words, it's when people are going through some sort of trauma, some sort of suffering, some sort of difficulty, i.e. some sort of pain, that they're more willing to receive the Jesus that you are trying to share with them. Now, Christian, this is such an important thing to realize because if you don't realize this, you will fall into two common errors that we see so often happening in churches when they try to share Jesus. And you know what those two common errors are? I call it imposition and rationalization imposition and rationalization let's quickly go through that beginning with imposition there is a method of evangelism that is very militant and even most often very malevolent usually it comes in the form of some preacher standing in the street corner somewhere or maybe in the middle of some quad of a very prominent campus university where they have a sign on one hand and maybe an old leathered Bible, of course, King James Version, because that's the only true Bible, right? And they start spitting out hatred, vitriolic language, as if they can scare people into the loving arms of Jesus. 
Now, the problem with this method of evangelism is that it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible never condones, never encourages this method of evangelism. Now, I know some of you might say, uh, I think you're wrong, Pastor. I beg to differ. Because when I read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament prophets, these prophets seem to talk like these three preachers, where they are using threatening words. They are using vivid, scary language to scare people. So I think maybe they have a justification to preach and evangelize that way. No, I'm sorry, that's not true. For two reasons. If you read the Old Testament prophets carefully, you'll notice that when they use such vivid and threatening language, it's really directed at two types of people. Group number one is God's own people who are living in unfaithfulness, most likely by the way they are mistreating other people like the poor, the women, the children, the widows, and the orphans. The second group of people that the Old Testament prophets speak so negatively against are the nations who after many, many hundreds of years of unfaithfulness where they are killing the innocent, harming their own people, and of course harming God's people, right? The prophets speak against them. But here's the thing. In both of these instances, the prophets are not evangelizing, okay? Because the point of evangelism is to convey what? God's forgiveness. That's not the goal of the prophets. They are trying to convey God's judgment and that it's coming, okay? That's the whole point of why, that speak, why they speak that way. And so when these street preachers or quote-unquote evangelists try to justify their methods, like, I'm just following the method of the Old Testament prophets, they clearly are not understanding their scripture. Because scripture never says that when it comes to sharing the good news, when it comes to sharing the forgiveness and mercy of God, you don't follow the pattern of the old covenant dispensation where you're just pronouncing judgment. That's not how it works. And if you do that, you fall into the first common error of evangelism. Okay? So that's the first error. The second error is what I call rationalization. And this happens when Christians mistakenly believe that evangelism means that you just have rational arguments with people or do apologetics. Now, don't get me wrong. I love apologetics. I've studied apologetics, and it's something that's very, very important, and it's something commanded by God, which is why in a couple weeks there's a sermon on apologetics coming up. My only point in bringing this up, however, is we cannot make the mistake of saying evangelism is apologetics or apologetics is evangelism because that's actually not true. Consider these words from theologian Mark Dever when he writes this, quote, Practicing apologetics is a good thing, but it's not evangelism. Answering questions and defending parts of the good news may often be a part of conversations Christians have with non-Christians. And while they may have been part of our own reading or thinking or talking as we came to Christ, such activity is not evangelism. By far, the greatest danger in apologetics is being distracted from the main message. Evangelism is not defending the virgin birth or defending the historicity of the resurrection. Apologetics is defending the faith answering the questions others have about Christianity. It is responding to the agenda that others set. Evangelism, however, is following Christ's agenda, the news about him. Evangelism is the positive act of telling the good news about Jesus Christ and the way of salvation through him. End point. Do you get the difference? So apologetics is where you provide an answer to a person's issues right, and problems that they have with God. Evangelism is providing the answer that God has, the problems and issues that God has with that person. Do you see? 
Do you see the difference? Because if you don't, then you will easily make the mistake of thinking that the real reason why people don't know Christ or want to receive Christ is simply a rational issue. But one of the things that we have seen over and over again is that the reason why people will not believe in Jesus is not fundamentally a reasoning problem. The Bible says it's a moral problem. It's because of sin. More specifically, it's pride. Pride. And one of the things that we have discovered over and over, either in your life or in the life of those around you, is that the only thing that can break down pride is pain. Pain. This is why Paul and Silas did not immediately share Jesus with the jailer because they were waiting for the pain. They were waiting for verse 27. Read it again. When the jailer woke and saw that the prisoner doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Notice the source of pain for the jailer. What was it? It was an earthquake. Okay? And notice this earthquake is not something that he could have prevented. It's not something that he could control once he was suffering through it. Okay? It was something beyond his control, beyond his ability to avoid, beyond his ability to prevent. Now, let me ask you, Christian, can you cause the earth to quake? No, you can't. But God can, and he still does all the time. I have personally witnessed people experiencing earth-shattering events in their life, the death of a loved one, a diagnosis at the office that they're terrified of, a financial setback that is major, overwhelming them. And yet, as terrible as those sufferings were, it was the means in which God came into that person's life where the moment someone shared Jesus with them, they received Jesus, and they ended up relishing Jesus. Why? Because some faithful friend, some faithful sibling, some faithful coworker or schoolmate was with this person before the pain came, was with them in the middle of the pain they were enduring, and they stayed with them after the pain was resolved because Jesus came into their life because they were willing to share Jesus with them in their pain. If you want to know what is needed to share Jesus truly, you got to wait for the pain. You got to wait for the pain. Which leads us now to the third and final thing we need in order to share Jesus, and that is the power needed to share Christ. Read again 28, where it says this, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Here we see Paul's immediate response as he witnesses this jailer attempting to kill himself. What does he do? He cries out in a loud voice. Maybe he said, Stop! Right? Or no! No, Tommy, no, right? Maybe something like that. Best of the best reference for those of you older people here, right? Look it up. It's a great movie. Anyway, maybe it was something like that. But clearly it was some sort of emotional reaction, which tells us that Paul had some genuine concern for this man, which is so odd. Why would Paul be concerned about this jailer? Because after all, Paul and his friend Silas are suffering an unjust crime against them. They're falsely accused. And this jailer most likely knows that these guys are victims of false charges. And added to that, Paul could have stuck it to this jailer by escaping once God opened the cells with the earthquake. But Paul doesn't. He sticks around. Why? Why doesn't he just say, tough to be you, and leave? Consider these words 
from scholar Tom Constable. Luke's, the author of Acts, emphasizes emphasis was on the love and concern that Paul and Silas demonstrated for the jailer. By remaining in prison when they could have escaped, as well as preventing his, the jailer's suicide, it was primarily this love, I think, that won the jailer over, end quote. Paul loved the jailer. Now, I know you hear that, like, that just sounds so storybook, Disney fantasy nonsense. How can Paul love a guy who's part of this major inconvenient, painful scenario that he's in, who's contributing to his pain and his misery? How? Because of the gospel. That's how. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says you and I hate God. Evidenced by our selfishness, our cynicism, and our sinfulness. Okay, we hate God by nature. We are sinners by nature. We hate the Lord. And how does God respond? Does he hate us back? Does he pounce on us? Does he judge us? Does he destroy us? Does he put us in our place? No, he comes into this world as a man, as Jesus Christ, so that he could suffer the penalty of your hatred of him, which is the cross. Why did Jesus do this? Why? Could it be because he's trying to show us that he's the best friend we could ever have and will ever have? I draw your attention to Romans 5, starting in verse 7. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus, he ain't a fair-weather friend to you guys. He doesn't love you when it's convenient for him. He doesn't want to be in your life when it's easy for him. No, he wants to be in your life so much, even if it means he has to be truly inconvenienced the most, where he has to suffer the greatest suffering, where he has to be condemned with the greatest condemnation, where he has to go through the greatest pain, sorrow, and humiliation that could ever happen to a human being, i.e. the wrath of God. What kind of friend is Jesus to you? I'll tell you what, he's a better friend than you'll ever be to him. But you know what? He'll still be there for you. That is what the gospel teaches. This is the love our master has for us. And more and more awareness of this love will change you and compel you to love like him. Right? Don't you end up loving the things that your loved ones love? Before I married Sarah, man, I hated cleaning. I really did. And when I married her, I thought to myself, dear Lord, what have I gotten myself into? But now, I think I love cleaning more than her. No, don't, don't tell her that. She's a mother of five kids, so that's probably why she's not cleaning as much. Well, actually, no, she cleans just as much as she used to. She does. But I love what my, life, my, what my, what my wife loves. The same is true. The more you understand this friendship that you have with your Jesus, the more you understand the love that your Christ has for you, the more you will love like this Christ. And you will be the best friend to the people around you who don't know him, who are desperately searching for their greatest friend that you can represent by sharing him with them. Here's my question, Christian. Do you have that conviction? Think about the people in your life and ask yourself, who are the equivalent of the Philippian jailer in my life that was in Paul's Who are the people that I share commonality with? A common blood, a common history, a common work, a common school, 
a common prison? That you know that God has strategically put you in and who among them are suffering? Who among them are sorrowful? Who among them are going through some pain that maybe God is tapping your shoulder and saying, pay attention, the pain is coming. Be there for them before it's there so that you can be with them while they're in it and that you can also show them the victory that they have in me as you stay faithful to them as their friend. Is that your calling? It sure is. But the answer is, will you obey it? I hope we do. A couple next steps as we end today's message. Number one, if you're visiting today and you're ready to make this commitment, if this message or this gathering or whatever happened to you leading up to now says, I want my best friend. I finally want the friend I've been desperately trying to have but couldn't find in my wife, in my kids, in my classmates, in my schoolwork, in, schoolwork, in my schoolmates, my, my workmates. If you're finally ready to say hello to the one who's been calling you, take this time now and accept Christ by repenting of your sin, making him the king of your life, which is really another way of saying accept his friendship, okay? And then come talk to me or Pastor Charles. We would love to help you in your next steps. Number two, memorize and meditate on Romans 5, 7 through 8. I love, love memorizing scripture, and I love telling you guys to memorize scripture. Memorize it, and as you do, and as you pray through it, write out some names of the people in your life, in your oikos, your social networks, who might be going through some heartache that you could be the means of remedying by sharing Christ, okay? Think about who those people are and be present and ready. If you're not in an oikos group, join one. Join one, join one, join one, okay? Because right now the Oikos group has been doing extensive study through the curriculum that we have put together to help equip you and understand for you how important it means to share Jesus with the people around you, okay? Currently, they're going through a curriculum called 8 to 15 that will teach you practically on how to do it. Join a current new one or join a current one or join a new one and you will eventually hit that curriculum and you will learn more about it. Take the list you made and pray for them in your OG and brainstorm public and social space events that you can do together with them to invite them to. Maybe you can invite a parent to help out with this bake sale the next time they do it again. Maybe you can invite them to go to Inner City Crew with you. Maybe you can go to a Knicks game or spend your money on better things than that. I don't know. I love the Knicks. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to truly hear this call of being committed to blessing this world by sharing the most important person ever. And Lord, I know that many of us struggle with this as I do, where we do not prioritize, we don't feel the compulsion, we don't feel the conviction to share Christ. Lord, have mercy on us by showing us of the friendship that you have established with us through the cross. May that convict us, but also compel us to think and to feel and to act differently, that we would truly see the people in our lives with the love that you have for us so that we can show them the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name, amen.